We're excited to be partnered with Gulfstream Park for their championship meet, highlighting the new Tropical Turf Pick 3. The wager includes three turf races every Friday, Saturday, and Sunday with a very competitive 15% takeout. Additionally, the bet features a $3 minimum wager and will run even if the day's races are moved from the turf to the Tapita. Do not miss our Tropical Turf Pick 3 handicapping shows all throughout the month of January to get all your tips and analysis. Speaking of our friends at Gulfstream, the Pegasus is nearly upon us, and that means horse racing's most player-friendly tournament, the Pegasus World Cup Betting Championship, is back on Saturday, January 27th. What makes it so great? Well, first is seeding the pool with $50,000 of their own cash, and of your $6,000 bankroll, $5,000 acts as your live tournament bank with just $1,000 going to prizes. That means more money for you to use to skyrocket to the top of the leaderboard. At 200 players, we'd be looking at a $250,000 prize pool, and the prizes themselves are excellent. We're talking about huge stacks of cash, BCBC seats, NHC seats, and seats to the new and improved Ultimate Betting Challenge. Plus, you can play in the PWCBC online at ExpressBet or on track at Gulfstream or Santa Anita. Think you have what it takes? Head over to PWCBC.com for more information. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the In The Money Players podcast. This is our show that we're recording Friday, January 19th, covering Santa Anita for Saturday, January 20th. I'm your host, Peter Thomas Fornital, coming back to you from Gallery 55 here in Brooklyn, upstairs of the Brooklyn Bunker. It is currently, uh, it looks like it's going sideways out the window, but I'm kind of thinking these might just be flurries. We'll see. Maybe we're getting more real snow. It had been about two years since we'd had it, so I'm not complaining as much as I normally do under these conditions. Coming to us now, a man not dealing with snow, but dealing with, I think, colder than than usual weather, if I understood the weather report uh, correctly, down there where he resides in Texas. It's been too long since I've been together on these airwaves within the moneypodcast.com's own Nick Tamaro. Nick, how are things? Is it cold down there? I'm doing great, my friend. It is. It is chilly today. We had a little bit of a weather roller coaster here with a warm-up yesterday, and then the, the colder weather came in, and we're having a, a classic Texas winter day where the high temperature is reached at about 6 in the morning. And it goes down as the day goes on. There's a little wind out of the north and we're supposed to get this for a few days. And yeah, we're expecting temperatures not really to climb above 50, which in Texas freezing is 50. So if it gets (laughs) below 50, that's when everybody panics. Um, We had we had weather actually under the actual freezing temperature for about 48 hours earlier this week, including some ice on Tuesday, which uh, which kept everybody, including the school children home. So it's been a a little harsher winter than we're accustomed to. But you never know when January gets this aggressive. February often uh, goes out like a lamb, but or we'll have it the other way around where February is is much more active. So we'll see if maybe things calm down a little bit. I will say, though, I noticed I heard I was listening to a, a sports betting podcast and somebody opined that maybe there's been a little bit more action later in the week on the Ravens with the weather forecast in Baltimore. But I can assure you that the Texans going to Baltimore is nothing like the Dolphins going to Kansas City. I mean, right. first of all, it was like it was like negative 300 at Kansas City last week. And they were coming from, you know, from 70 degree Miami. But the Texans are not going to be coming from a warm climate right now. It is it is plenty, plenty cool down here. So no, no big concern there. 
what do you what chances do you give the Texans? There's there's been some buzz. They've been kind of a now team. I think the spread was definitely affected um, in their favor by how good they looked last week. I mean, still nine point dogs or whatever it is. But but do you give them do you give them any count against the mighty Ravens? Yeah, puncher's chance, right? I mean, uh, Lamar Jackson has some really, really poor numbers as a favorite, especially as a big favorite. Um, I, I, I was I actually learned this morning he's fifteen and twenty three at home as the favorite overall, including the playoffs. Um, yeah, which is a really, really weak number. And I mean, you know, look, going back eighteen weeks now to week one, the Texans held their own against Baltimore, and that was when the Texans were expected to be about a twelve or thirteen loss team. And the Ravens were expected to be a high-flying, you know, AFC leader. And we're dealing with a totally different version of C.J. Stroud now versus what we had back then. So, yeah, you know, what the Texans have going for them that's always dangerous this time of year, Pete, is that I don't think they realize they're not supposed to be there. Right. And and those kind of teams are dangerous. So, you know, I'm hopeful that they're able to keep it close. Maybe they get a, a good bounce their way at some point. But uh, the fact that they're now playing essentially what is their – their fourth straight playoff game. I mean, they needed to beat Tennessee in week 17 to have a chance. They absolutely had to beat Indianapolis in week 18 to um, to have a chance to get, to get into the playoffs. They had things break their way. They then won their wild card game. So, you know, they're playing a team that whose starters we've not seen since the week after Christmas. So that it's maybe, a- you know, sometimes that works against the favorite. Yeah, I, you're making good points, and and Stroud's just been a revelation to me. I mean, and the fact that he essentially has playoff experience from what you've just described beyond his years, and he seems sort of beyond his years anyway. What type? I just have to ask this. Hopefully, the the audience is as interested as I am in this kind of stuff. But this actually reminds me of you know horse questions and ephemeral qualities such as class we talk about with equine athletes, and I, I think sometimes they're imbued in human athletes as well is is Stroud like how popular of a figure is he in Houston right now he is on a trajectory that would almost guarantee you that long term he could be the most popular athlete in the history of the city wow I would I would say that that so Campbell want a word or what well the the pantheon the pantheon of sports greats in Houston involves names like Watt Campbell uh uh, Altuve, Biggio, Olajuwon. Yeah, and oh, you Olajuwon. Can, you can, probably yeah. Be my Olajuwon, is, Olajuwon is the most popular athlete in the history of Houston. I'll, I'll go to the mat to fight anybody on that just because he was a <laughs> U of H guy and, right. and a, a rocket and the two championships. Um, there was a little, you know, Akeem was difficult early in his career. And, and so some people soured on him a little bit in the you know late 80s, early 90s, and he wanted to get traded and then the team got purchased and he he – signed a contract extension, but he did end his career in Toronto. So, I mean, there was always, but Biggio was beloved. Bagwell was beloved. J.J. Watt was beloved, obviously. Didn't bring a championship. If C.J. Stroud somehow even got the Texans to the Super Bowl, and and I hope that that happens, he will eclipse all of those people by far. I mean, this, we we laugh every year. I, I was telling some friends when the Astros were making another playoff run in October, and they're like, you know, it's so cool how, how much the city gets into it and this and that. And I said, can you imagine what the two weeks would be like if the Texans were in the Super Bowl? I mean, it would, just be, it would be absolute bedlam. So, yeah, he's on a very, very strong course. Um, of course, I think all of us are a little – we temper our enthusiasm a tad because, first of all, we've never really had a franchise quarterback. Watson was about as close as we got, and he turned out to be a weirdo and a lame-o. So, um, but, look, we benefited long run from that trade 
handsomely. So, you know, it's like, okay, look, we really want to get behind this guy. Let's hope that this is all real. So, you know, I hope they have a good showing tomorrow and I hope ultimately they're able to keep some of their coaching staff together. Cause it looks like, it looks like the Titans out of spite may hire Bobby Slowick just to, uh, to try <laughs> and give him an opportunity there. But um, hopefully whomever has been in there game planning with him has taken a lot of notes because he's done a really incredible job with the rookie quarterback, especially as a first year play caller. You know, when you think about they have a first year play caller, they have a first year head coach, they have a rookie quarterback, their best wide receiver was a rookie before Tank Dell got hurt. Nico Collins is still very, very young. I mean, they're super young across the board at skill positions. Interestingly, they're not super young when it comes to some of the grunts. Like their their offensive line is, is on the older side, and that's actually working in their favor because those guys are experienced and they're doing an excellent job. Laramie Tunsil is one of the most underrated players in the league. Oh. He's kind of Stroud's blindside clean all season. So yeah, it's been, it's been a lot of fun. I'm, I'm hopeful that nobody tries to poach Nick Casario. And obviously there's no concern with D'Amico Ryans. And if we could somehow keep slow it for another year or two, that'd be incredible. It's been fun. It's been a really fun story to follow just as a, just as a total neutral thus ends the Houston sports betting uh, show portion of the, in the money players podcast makes me think we should really, we should really, it would be fun if we had the resources to, to have the, regional uh, betting podcast for everywhere. I think we'd be able to do okay with that, but a uh, project for, for another year right now, we're going to go out to Santa Anita where we don't have to worry about things like weather. And we're going to talk about the pick six on Saturday. It kicks off in race number four with a $25,000 claimer for four-year-olds and up going a mile on the dirt race. That doesn't seem to have a ton of pace in it. I was going to try to pick my horses based on that angle. How do you see this one playing out, Nick? Yeah, this really looks like a golden opportunity for the four Mystic Flyer. And, you know, I, I got to tell you, Pete, uh, with all due respect to John White, who's a, a very good veteran line maker, if these lines are right, this horse is like a, a major, major bet. Because if, you, if you're willing to look past his last three turf races, which, you know, Michael McCarthy is as sharp as they come, he kept running this horse on turf, despite him really not looking like he was much of a turf horse. You look at that last dirt race, speed figure-wise, it's an absolute stick out. I mean, he it is it is the best race in this field on dirt, not just this year. It's it's probably the best race on dirt in this field ever. And he has a massive pace advantage here. This is an old-fashioned Tyler Bay's right to the front move to me. Um, this is a horse I think you're supposed to get very bold with. That the race, of course, I'm referencing is that second place finish behind Stamp My Passport. But I mean, even digging in deeper, he ran fine when he was third here in the Golden State Juvenile. He ran very well at Del Mar in November of 22. So you can't just say maybe he's a Del Mar horse for course. This looked to me like a horse that you really wanted to to try and sink your teeth into a little bit. I do think that both uh, Montana and uh, Bendetti Joe are dangerous. Bendetti Joe more so because he's dropping in class so much. And I've got a lot of respect for the, the work that Vladimir Sarin does. But I'd back up with the one five and a little bit of six, but I'd be very bold on the four. Yeah, same top pick, and I mean, I have so little to add. You, you, you nailed that. I mean, just the pace angle looks very, very strong here, and I feel like if if that horse gets late, that the the five Benedetti Joe looked like the one who would probably go by, and I just wasn't seeing the pace allowing to uh, let the deeper closers get involved. So I was going to try four five to the hoop to kick things off. Nick's got the four backed up with the one five and six as we pivot and go to race number five, where we've got. Three-year-old maiden claimers at the fifty-thousand-dollar level, going a mile on the turf. Nick, how did you see this one? 
Yeah, fun race here. I, and, you know, you've got horses obviously working the class ladder a little bit with a lot of them running for a tag for the first time. And I think that's kind of where I focused the majority of my attention was on the runners, the two runners on the outside. Uh, Sean McCarthy this time uh, instead of Michael McCarthy, who does have a runner that I think deserves some attention as well. But I think Goldfoot's last race is a little bit better than it looks on paper. He did get into a little little traffic trouble around the quarter pole and then again late lost position a little bit. He was inside. You know, he just never really had that good, clean run. And it was an improved race. First time going long. He's now first time gelding, first time Lasix, first time tag. Those are big, those are big angles. And, you know, I think, yeah, I think ultimately what this horse wants to do is he wants to be forward. And Kyle Frey has sort of made his bones in Southern California being a more aggressive rider. So I think he puts him into the game. I think that makes him very dangerous. Uh, I picked him on top. I'm also going to use the eight potential spam who has been facing better and has really elevated his game since he got back to the turf for Doug O'Neill. He also gets Lasix and blinkers. Hopefully that keeps him a little bit more involved early. He did have the misfortune of, of landing in a race with a pretty strong pace last time. And he really was never all that far off of it. I, I liked it. Antonio Frezu for a European rider is really willing to get his horses into the game. And, um, and then I mentioned Michael McCarthy, maximum capacity, Towards the inside, he ended up in a really fast-paced race, two back at Del Mar, and um, and, and gave it up late, very late. Um, as you can tell, that field was packed together. He was eighth beaten, just two and a half lengths, and it was a very tight finish. He's probably the main speed on the inside, though I'm not going to be altogether shocked if Goldfoot is right with him early. He's a little slow on pace figures, but I think this is a horse that's going to be ridden with a lot more intent coming out of there. So two, seven, and eight for me, probably use them equally. Um, only backup, I would say, I would go out of my way to use would be the six uh, audible silence who, even though progeny of audible have not been that great first time out, there are three turf winners on the damn side and this horse didn't disgrace himself first time out. Some good digging there for sure. Yeah. I thought you could lock it up with the droppers. So same a line as you slightly different order. Perhaps I had preference for uh, the hilariously named potential spam. Who's one of these horses who I think, you know, you look at and you think, Oh, six starts has never hit the exacta, but it's just the new low level has a way of waking these horses up. And I feel like coming out of some of those faster paced, better races coming down into this more evenly paced race. I just think this horse is going to end up in a perfect spot. I'm not too worried about the outside with just the, the, the eight runners. I, I think Frasu will be able to work out the trip and, you know, you made the points on the others. I mean, just kind of obvious, right? Maximum capacity, bit of a flow upgrade coming out of that race two back and just the massive drop in class. And you made the case for Goldfoot better than I would, but I just noticed the drop in class and the makeover. And that was enough for, for me to include. So yeah, I'll go eight, two, seven. I wrote you down as seven, eight, two with the six as a backup. Is that right? Or do you want to? Exactly right. Yep. You're happy enough with that. And I mean, is that, do you feel, is there a difference? You sometimes hear the class specifically cited in the drop uh, on turf as opposed to dirt. Do you think the, dro- the the drop from MSW to Maiden Claimer is any more potent on the grass, or is that is that just an angle you're interested in regardless? Yeah, I mean, I think you there are varying levels of depth to a lot of these Maiden Special Weight races that you're going to see, especially in a place like Southern California. And I mean, I think the race that Potential Spam and Maximum Capacity come out of on December 3rd was probably a stronger Maiden Special than the one that Goldfoot comes out of on November 12th. Simply, I mean, one was a 12-horse race, one was a seven-horse race. And I think based on what we've seen from some of those horses coming out of it, um, we did see the second-place finisher in the potential spam race come right back and win. So, yeah, not all of them are made equal. Um, I think you do want to look on a race-by-race basis. But I do think on turf you're generally going to see a little bit more variation. 
it's significant either way. And, um, and you want to take them seriously no matter what. The truest thing I ever was told by anyone is that it's the biggest class drop in racing. There you go. Let's move on to our next bit of action, which is race number six, where we've got state-bred optional claimer slash first-level allowance. I'm just going to jump in here and go first because my opinion is boring, Nick. I thought it really looked like scary, fast rides, race to lose, looking at a pace map, should be uh, there or thereabouts early and just, I thought, had a big figures and form advantage over this crew. Uh, Sean McCarthy with another very live runner, this uh, Harris Farms homebred. Is this race as simple as Scary Fast Ride, or can we get a little creative? Yeah, he's the horse to beat. There's no question about it. Um, he's he's in a really good – she, just, I should say, is in a really good spot from a class perspective, coming out of a stake race on the synthetic, getting back to dirt. The dirt effort, two back at Del Mar from a speed figure perspective, very, very good. One of those situations where it was a slow-paced race – so you have kind of a modest time form U.S. figure and a high buyer. Um, I don't know why Abdul Al-Sagor pulled this horse back so much early in there. Uh, she had previously shown a decent amount of speed, but uh, she really was wrangled back. And I do think that that kind of made her take the worst of it. Uh, but I've got to tell you, Pete, if a running line ever belied the quality of a performance, it belongs to the seven, which they all could be. Which they all could be was four to five in a 12-5 open claimer last out, broke from the rail and spotted the field about eight lengths coming out of the gate. I mean, this horse leapt right in the air at the start and, and you know, ended up stuck way behind the eight ball. Now, the problem with these kind of horses is that that is usually a pattern. It's very rare that a horse, especially now that two of her last three starts, she's gotten out of the gate slowly. It's very rare that this is something that just randomly pops up and goes away. So I'm hopeful that they've been working with her at the gate because I have to bet her back. I mean, I, I don't have a choice running the race that she did, making this huge wide move in a super slow paced race after she spotted the field that much ground over the surface that she's generally been better on than any other. You know, maybe breaking from the outside will help. Maybe the fact that she'll be in the gate for the shortest amount of time will help. Um, she was breaking from the rail last time. The last time she broke poorly, she was in the two in a, in a field of nine. I mean, we're not going to know until they spring the latch. The good thing about it is it's going to be like a quarter horse race, right? We're going to know from the time they open the gate whether we have a chance. And if yeah. she gets out of there, I think she can be very, very dangerous. I think when push comes to shove, you, you use her in Scary Fast Ride and you back up with the one Irish Waheen who came back off that win uh, over which they all could be to run kind of a modest race against slightly tougher for Gary Studi, now dropping back down into the Calbred ranks. And she's performed well at this level before. She's in for a tag here because she won at this class level back in January of last year. So she's one that I would just relegate to a backup because even though she beat her, I wish they all could be ran the best race by far last time. You make a compelling case, and with a name like Wish They All Could Be, given uh, my family's connection with the Beach Boys, I, I, I almost have to throw in as a backup. My original read on the race was, eh, going to be too far back, going to be a flow, you know, sort of a flow upgrade who doesn't get there again. But you're making good points about, you know, you look at the pace figure from the race two back, and she wouldn't be far back at all, I don't think, against this group. And it could be a case of, you know, you see that with horses when they start to go wrong. Not breaking can be them anti-touting themselves. But, you know, you do have that January 11th work to point to if you believe. I'm going to keep the five as my pick here, but going to definitely take a much longer look at the seven. Wish they all could be. Definitely a really compelling case made by Nick on that one. Let's go Wouldn't to race number nice seven. nice if he ends up getting out of the gate, right? Yeah, exactly. Oh, here's another thought that I was – I had this in my head and it left. So – I don't even know if you know this, Nick. It's kind of wild. In England right now, 
on on the betting exchange, the big betting exchange, who doesn't pay us, so we're not going to say their name, but you know the one I'm talking about. There's actually in-race betting on American racing. <laughs> and I don't know if it'd be as late as night as this. Maybe they only do it during prime time. It's not something I've messed around. I haven't been over there to mess around with it. But we know, we have international listeners. This is a very interesting race to take a look at and get to watch a few strides. And And if the seven breaks and is still you know, a healthy odds against price, which I think would be the case, could be a very interesting horse to maybe take a look at betting and running. The markets aren't like super liquid. You'd have to be careful and see what's there. Don't go crazy, people. But it's it'd be an interesting idea. It's definitely a race, as Nick points out, that if you could watch even the first two jumps, you'd have a pretty good idea of, uh, of what was going to happen thereafter. Because if the seven doesn't break, I do think it could really just be a benefit for the five. And if the seven breaks, all of a sudden you have an interesting um, odds against opportunity. Let's talk race number seven. Three-year-old maiden fillies going a mile and an eighth. Interesting distance this time of year on the turf. And we've got a field of nine and a race that uh, John White's morning line has as super competitive with uh, four horses under uh, under about four to one uh, in this spot. Is it something at the lower end of the odd spectrum that you like here, Nick, or, or can we reach for a bit of a price? Yeah, you know, look, you have to respect the three circle of trust who ran very well two back was disqualified for interference in upper stretch that race included visually who came back and won on opening day of the uh, of the classic meet at Santa Anita now gets Lasix for the first time for Phil D'Amato dropping out of the stake. I mean, she's extremely obvious. There's just no reason to, to take a good hard look at this race without really giving her the, the proper due. Um, but with that said, go back and watch the nightcap on opening day and keep an eye on American Dreammaker the whole way yep. around there, the nine. She had absolutely nothing go her way. Um, she took a modest amount of money. It was a 12-horse race. She went off 14-1, to 1, about what you'd expect. Michael McCarthy, not really a guy known for having his horses fully cranked first time out. She blew the break, was last, uh, lingered behind. Umberto Rispoli tried to keep her towards the inside, coming off the turn. She starts just stepping on horses late, running by all of them and is in fifth gear on the gallop out. I mean, she catches the leader of this race on the gallop out before they're at the turn. And I mean, there's not much room between the finish line and the turn, the first turn at Santa Anita on the turf. So she's just feels like a horse that's absolutely going to run better. Uh, I think the expectation is that she's going to be more professional. I think the public probably retreats from her a little bit because they're going to read into Rispoli opting for Circle of Trust. I think Circle of Trust probably goes off about seven to five or eight to five in this race. I think she's going to get that very, very heavily. And I think American Dreammaker is the alternative. I think you're just using the three and nine here. Um, you may be putting a couple of bucks on the two as a backup. And I think anybody else just sort of has to get treated as a surprise that we really can't see ahead of time. Reading each other's mail on this one once again. And and for me, as much as anything else, it's the fact that I, I think these are the ones, the three and the nine, who are going to benefit from the added ground. I, I thought I was being clever putting the nine on top, just based on that pedigree, I just expect so much more from this horse second out, given McCarthy's pattern, given the pedigree, given the added ground, you know, makes sense. And, you know, you can't blame Rispoli for going on to circle of trust just because here's a horse that, uh, you know, won the maiden so uh, impressively, seemingly two back before getting DQ'd and then opted for stakes company. It's a logical choice. It doesn't do anything to put me off the nine. I want to use these two. And then you made the case for backing up with the two runner Poppy's joy. I'll take a longer look at that one. I was, I think I was originally 
unsure about the damn side of the pedigree for the extra ground, but I may be overthinking it. You know, the one and the two certainly have claims on numbers, mainly nine, three for me, nine and three for Nick with a backup on the two. Anything else on this one before we move on to race number eight? Nah, I don't see any reason to go any deeper than that. Let's talk about race number eight. We've got the, the La Cunada stakes, grade three action going a mile and a 16th for Phillies and mares, four-year-olds and up field of six in this spot. And uh, first glance looks like a little bit of a match potentially between Desert Dawn and Midnight Memories. Is it as simple as those two? And which one do you prefer? Yeah, I mean, on, on the first question, I think it is as simple as those two. Um, I'm going to give a slight preference to Desert Dawn, and I'll probably I'll probably lose with her as I often do. She just has no killer instinct at all, and and you know her inability to cash in when she's got the right setup. Um, was very frustrating. The Breeders' Cup did staff two back. I was alive for really serious money with her to get at least second and thought I was getting everything at the eighth pole, um, including about 18 grand or so if she was to win, and um, which I probably would have just blown anyway, but whatever. So <laughs> you know, I felt like Hector Berrios was, was riding to instruction last time out, and I think the idea was like, let's get her to the front as quickly as we can and try and, and just sort of bury Midnight Memories. And the problem is that Desert Dawn is such a pack animal that when she went clear, she started to drift in and get goofy. And I think she realized about the eighth pole, like, holy shit, I've never been here before. You know, where is everybody? And all of a sudden, Midnight Memories ran right by her. And, you know, I think, I, I, so my thought on it is, I think Midnight Memories was probably much more keyed up to win off the layoff. Baffert's very good off the layoff and, and just okay second off the layoff. So I think in a scenario where you might have a bit more honestly run race, I think Desert Dawn is probably able to settle. I also think the X factor is Pratt. I think if, if somebody's going to figure out how to get this mare to win, it's Flavian Pratt. And I think that's the approach you have to take. I mean, she is remarkably consistent. You look at a thoroughgraph pattern. She has nothing but threes and fours going all the way back to 2022. I mean, she runs her race every single time. She is the quintessential figure maker's horse because if you plan on her running her race, it becomes a lot easier to make figures. I think the other horse, if you're looking for a third option, is the one musical mischief, who I fear might get a little overbet uh, because she does have a little bit of appeal uh, based on the quality of the dirt effort two starts back. And then the fact that she really ran well in the American Oaks in a, in a relatively fast paced race. I think the expectation in there was that she was going to go to the lead and she ended up racing forwardly. Um, was always on top of it, really never gave up going a mile and a quarter. So she's an interesting fit, shortening up to a mile and the 16th. I also think the, you have to imagine the plan here is to just go with her. Yeah. And if you end up with uh, with Midnight Memories wanting to push you, then maybe you concede. But either way, you're very forwardly placed trying to get the jump on everybody else. So um, I, I would use the one, four, and six probably equally. I don't have a lot of of horses I'm using along the way in here, and, and I don't want to differentiate between the three. I do fear that in doing so, I'll probably just set it up for Midnight Memories to win again. But I think I'm willing to bet against that. We're we're oppo here. Well, we, we have some similarity, but we're oppo in terms of the top pick. Now, my read of the last race, and you're making a good case that's making me question myself, but my read of the last race with Midnight Memories was that if Desert Dawn didn't beat her there, she's not going to beat her because that was off the layoff. And now second off the layoff, I, I thought Midnight Memories had every chance to get the job done once again. Uh, you're definitely making me reconsider that a little bit, but that, that was the gut read. And I thought you you hit the nail on the head with Musical Mischief as being the interesting one. If the rail's not bad, especially 
or even if the rail isn't great, maybe he can just break and get off the rail and get out there. But I think Midnight Memories is going to be happy to get the usual sort of Baffert grindy forward trip, which could open it up for Musical Mischief under Rispoli to get the, the front running upset score potentially. So I, I, I think that the one is interesting. If the rail happened to be good, the one becomes very interesting. For now, I'm going to call it uh, the six is an A and the and the one is a B. Does that does that approach make sense or you think you're going to kick sand in my face with Desert Dawn still? No, I probably need to quit Desert Dawn. So you're probably right. Um, I need to just give up on her once and for all. This is I, I've I've drawn up the papers, the divorce papers with Desert Dawn already. And so we'll see if I need to file at, at roughly uh, roughly 410, 415 Pacific time Saturday afternoon. Pretty funny. The last race of the sequence. The last race we're talking about on the show is a maiden claimer, $50,000 level, a mile on the turf and a field of nine going postward. When it comes to this Saturday pick six at Santa Anita, Nick, how are we going to get paid? You know, just with with my handicapping, integrating uh, Timeform US into speed figure analysis along with trips, you I have to bet the six quintessence who, yes, is 0 for 13. This horse has been a victim of a lot of negative circumstances and you know in an era where we complain i complain quite frequently about the, the lack of real pace in turf races i mean this horse has gotten into one fast pace race after another and he is due an opportunity to run in a race that's maybe run at a more moderate early clip and i think he found it i think he's just supposed to be on the lead i don't really see mike smith going going crazy coming out of the gate on pioneer prince so if quintessence is able to clear this field I mean, how many times, Pete, have you seen a running line like his last one with three coated red pace figures and horses come back and run well off of that? The nightcap winner at, at uh, Gulfstream last, yesterday on Thursday afternoon was a horse who had a very similar profile, was coming out of a race where he was closest to a fast pace. He was the one who survived the, the best, and he came right back and beat all of them. I mean, people are going to bet Caribbean King over Quintessence, and quite honestly, Quintessence ran better last time. I mean, there's no yeah. argument at all. Um, he, he beat him a half a length, sitting off of it, taking advantage of it. If he's able to get loose in this field, I think he's going to be virtually impossible to beat. With that said, I mean, you, you if you're making a multi-race bet, you really can't lean on him too heavily. He is still over 13. He does have that one-way style about him. You use the one and four as well. So I, to me, it's very obvious. They are the two horses that are kind of supposed to win, quote unquote, and he's the interesting horse. Yeah, I, I think you've laid it out pretty well. Quintessence, my original reading of it was probably going to get tired again, but the cutback is interesting for this horse as I look about it for, for a second. And I think the fact that Hernandez getting to ride now for the third time at the shorter distance feels like, and, and just the lack of any other like reasonable speed, um, all reasons why this horse could hang out. I originally had as a backup. I'm tempted to to move up uh, to move up to an A. You talked about the one and the four. The runner that the, the other one that I definitely wanted to mention that I had as my top pick actually, uh, as well as having the one, four, and six in the mix was the number five Pioneer Prince. I don't know. Maybe this is a sucker horse dropping first time as a gelding, but the sort of class on the grass angle does apply here. Has had a makeover, and Mandela's just been flying. So for all those reasons, I was thinking we'd see a much new and improved version of Pioneer Prince. This is a race where I don't have a huge opinion, and I do want to probably use all of four horses. But let's talk about Pioneer Prince for a second. You, you obviously uh, didn't care for, for him. Do you think he's a, a sucker horse or just one that won't represent much value? 
Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I don't love the horses that he ran against two back. I know he did kind of run against the grain of the race being close to the pace and tiring late. But uh, Petkoff is a horse that I've chased quite a few times uh, with no success. And Neon Lights, who was second, did come right back and win, but not in a compelling type of fashion. So I was a little against. I do think he ran better on the dirt last time out. I, I wonder if going to the turf maybe is a positive because Mandela is pretty committed to doing so. I, I will admit also, Pete, and I, and I don't mean to insult anybody who's involved in it. I often shy away from these my racehorse horses because they all they're all underlays. Yeah, they get bad. Yeah, yeah, they just all get bad. And I mean, I think the contrarian in me always wants to go against basically everything I ever hear or see, um, but specifically <laughs> this type of stuff because you just know you're going to get. You know, this four is probably going to open at two. Right. And people, the general public as well, even outside of the, you know, of the, the 10 trillion owners are going to see that he got a 79 fig last time. They're not really going to care terribly much whether it was on dirt. They're going to see yeah. Mandela's gaudy record to start the meet. And all of a sudden you're going to get just a lot of backing for this horse. But yeah, I mean, I shouldn't be so flippant as to throw him out altogether. I'd hate to get alive in something and be beaten by him, but he would just be nothing more than a, than a second rung backup for me. I have what I have noticed about the my racehorse phenomenon is I think it's mostly true in the wind pool. And I feel like in a bet like the pick six, some of that equity gets gets preserved, which makes sense for a horse that has I, I don't mean to make light of it, but whatever it is, a hundred or a couple hundred owners um, who are, you know, it, it it it's I feel like it's not as you don't gain as much equity trying to beat these horses outside the wind pool. Does that sound like a reasonable supposition? Yes, I agree. And I think, you know, quite honestly, and I think a lot of them would, would probably agree, maybe some reluctantly, that they're not going to be the most sophisticated betters, right? And I mean, it's... it's I almost said that and I stopped to... short worried I'd insult somebody. Leave it to well, you to just go there and, and say it out loud. I like that. I'm, I'm, I'm meaner than you. It's, it's, uh, it's, just, it's okay. I'm embracing it. But yeah, I mean, you know, I think, I think a lot of them would admit that, you know, they're not sitting down formulating pick six tickets tomorrow morning, they're going to be excited about telling all their friends that a horse that they own one thirty-second of, or, or, you know, one thirty-second of 1% of is running in the last race at Santa Anita. So it's totally understandable. And I have no issue whatsoever with fractional ownership in racing. I just know that, you know, these horses in general, back when you could bet on races at Sam Houston um, nationwide, which seems like it was about 20 years ago, there was a horse running one night and I looked at the board. It was like, how the hell did I make this horse 12 to one? And he opened up at two to five. And I looked down and I realized that it was a my racehorse animal. So <laughs> one of those that I've kind of kept an eye on it a lot since, and, and it does seem to happen pretty frequently. But that's funny. Uh, look, I, I think they could do a lot worse than to bet on this horse. It's not like he's some some far fetched twenty to one shot. Um, so yeah, I, I could see him taking a lot of money. I could also see him running very well. I just this is another horse that another situation where I only not my my eye is really on quintessence, and I'm hoping that he finally has something break his way. Generally speaking, I think it's an interesting thing to do, sort of the exercise we just went through there when you're talking about how to use a public handicapper's picks. If I, and I'm lucky I just have a chance like I did right now to talk to Nick and just have this conversation. But if I notice that my top pick isn't in Nick or Dean Kepler or Frank Scatoni's, you know, top three, I'm going to, it's the kind of thing that's going to make me take another look at it. The same way that uh, if they have some long shot on top that I don't have anywhere in my reckoning, 
I'm going to take another look at that horse as Susan's tea is ready here in Gallery 55. I realize one of the advantages of the bunker is well, we don't have to listen to tea kettles and, and running water during the show. <laughs> yeah, I'll take a cup. Um, before we let you get out of here, Nick, I think we've covered the pick six. Did you have any other thoughts on the, the football th- this weekend? Any other any other bets that you're going to be making? Uh, you know, I don't think anything that stands out terribly. I mean, I think if I was if I was maybe pushed to make one bet all weekend, I'd probably bet the Bills minus two and a half. I, I think they're a, they're a relatively safe play. I think yep. they're a they're a difficult matchup for the Chiefs, and they're also a little bit healthier on defense than they were going into last week, which I think will help as well. The problem with the Bills is that it just seems like they, even when they're better they either do enough themselves to make things harder or they let their opponent back into the game. Like last week, they, they were supposed to have Pittsburgh dead and buried. And, you know, here we were with a late possession where Pittsburgh was in position potentially to tie the game. And then you had a late possession where you were holding on for dear life. If you bet the bills, because you were wide open for the backdoor cover on the underdog. So I'd probably bet that I I'm, I'm also inclined to think that, the, the 49ers-Packers game could get a little ugly. I know, and the Packers are taking a decent amount of money because of how good they looked against the Cowboys last week. But, you know, this is a scenario where the 49ers are really supposed to put the screws to them. They, they The 49ers have matched up well against Matt LaFleur offenses in the past, including two years ago when they were an underdog against a very good Green Bay team, and they went in and beat them in a, in a cold-weather game in 2022 for the 2021 season. So I could see that getting to be a bit of a route. Um, so, so I guess my second, second best play would be to lay the points with the 49ers. It's an awful lot of points to, to try and cover in a playoff game, but it feels like a scenario where if there's one game this weekend that gets lopsided, I mean, hopefully it's not the Ravens Texans game. It feels like if there's another one, it would definitely be the, uh, the Niners. My inclination with the Niners and green Bay is to watch a little of that game. Because I feel like the Green Bay template for doing well is entirely correlated to getting off to a fast start. And if the Niners start to do well, I might just accept the lower price you'll get at that point and bet them then. Because I just don't see them. I don't see Green Bay like coming back in that game. Maybe I'm being naive, but that's my gut there. I like your idea about the Chiefs. I'd go so far, I think, as to buy the extra point, even if you end up having to lay like 150 or whatever it would be, just to to get that to three and a half. I'd feel pretty good about it feel pretty good about that position though. I also respect the idea um, that that's a, that that's an unpredictable game that could go a lot of ways just because there's this, you know, feels like there may be some dormant talent on the chiefs, but I'm, I'm, I'm about Buffalo there for sure. And then just one line I want to steal, as I always love to steal from my friend, uh, Gil Alexander and the beating the book podcast. One of his guests this week described the NFL divisional round as where Cinderella goes to die. Maybe a little bit harsh, <laughs> maybe something I wouldn't let my daughter hear, but, uh, and, and something you're certainly not rooting for with your, with your Houston Texans still alive. But I do think when it comes to, to green Bay, it may just apply. Yeah, I think that's I think that's that's probably the, the game where it's applicable. I'll tell you this. Four years ago, the Texans entered the divisional round of the playoffs and had a 24 nothing lead on the Chiefs. And that feels like it was about 40 years ago. <laughs> that was a long, long time ago. And there were two very ugly three, actually very ugly seasons for the Texans since then. Uh, the franchise has never gotten past the divisional rounds of the playoffs. Looked like they were on their way. It looked like we were actually on our way to a. 
I think it would have been a, a five versus four conference championship game of Tennessee at Houston uh, because Tennessee had beaten Baltimore the day before. And um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's usually when the divisional round is usually when the superior teams really, really assert themselves. And I mean, look, I, I don't think anybody is going to be the slightest bit surprised if what we're faced with in terms of conference championship games after this weekend is Detroit at San Francisco and Buffalo at Baltimore. It, it is the uh, those are definitely the favorite sides. Good stuff, Nick. Always appreciate having you on. Thank you very much. We'll be those of us who are able. Um, we'll be listening to you uh, on the mic coming up at, at Sam Houston and, and we'll be talking soon. Sounds great, my friend. Thanks for having me. Good luck this week. And we start this segment with an apology because I've been leaving this man in the green room for 10 minutes while I'm multitasking and doing other things. The, the dangers of uh, trying to, to run a, a media network here um, with, with a scatterbrain. We bring in now, though, a man whose brain is anything but scattered. He comes to us from first bet slash express bet. He is. Dustin Fabian. Dustin, what's going on, man? Oh, not too much. You know, I, uh, I I jumped in and I was just admiring the fact that you're you're embracing the weather much more than I am right now. I looked at you. I'm like, man, that is a guy who looks warm. I'm sitting here in Pittsburgh. It's snowing outside. But I said, you know what? I'm pulling out the South Florida vibes right now. I've got my... Uh, I've got my polo on. It's got, you know, my, my fancy XB select polo. So we're, we're, we're right, ready for Pegasus. We're excited for next week. That is a cool shirt. Not quite Aloha, but we we're getting those kind of vibes. I, I might need, I might need one of those so I can, I can wear it on, on future, uh, on future shows we do together. You mentioned the Pegasus. That is what, you know, we're thinking about, even though there's great racing at Gulfstream, Santa Anita this weekend, attention is really at this point turning to that. And I'm pumped. And one of the reasons I'm pumped is this Pegasus World Cup betting challenge. Uh, such a great opportunity for players. I want you to tell us about it. Let's start off with the basics of the format. Sure. So, you know, as you mentioned, this is a tournament that we've been running in conjunction with Pegasus since 2018. Each year it gets a little bit bigger, a little bit better. Last year we had 230 players. They were competing for 280000 in prize money. So big opportunity to, uh, to cash big at the windows. Format-wise, you know, if you're familiar with BCBC, very similar to, to tournaments of that, uh, of like that. But, you know, it's every race on Pegasus Day. How it works is if you're going to play, you put up $6,000 as an entry fee. The good news is 5,000 of that 6,000 is your bankroll. So it's not like you're going in, you're, you're throwing a ton of money at this thing that, that you're not going to see back. So $5,000 bankroll, the other $1,000 goes right to the prize pool. So you jump in on, on Pegasus Day. It's win, place, show, exact a trifecta, daily double wagers. Um, pretty much the only stipulations we have are you got to play those pools You've got to bet at least $5,000, so you have to cycle through your bankroll one time, and you have to bet at least four races at $500 a pop. Otherwise, right. you're on your own, nice and easy, simple for players, and you know we've seen players turn a, a little bit of money into a ton of money, so it, it's super cool. Definitely. That 50000 added to the prize pool by you guys just changes this and, and allows the player to have to put up much less of the entry fee and still have those top level prizes. Let's talk about those prizes next. What are people playing for? What can they win? Absolutely. So I, th I think the best place to start is, is last year, right? So 
Last year, we got 230 players. Great number. Superb turnout. Like you said, we take $50,000 of first money, express bet money. We seed the prize pool. So that's great, right? Makes it super player friendly. Um, the $1,000 per, per entry fee. So 230 players last year, $280,000 in prizes that people are paying for. First, you know, it's cash, right? That's the, that's the number one piece. If we get 200 players this year, $178,000 is paid out in cash to our top eight finishers. Then on top of that, we're giving away seats to BCBC. We're giving away seats to the NHC. We're giving away seats to the Ultimate Betting Challenge, which is a, a new, new uh, formatted tournament that we have over here at first on uh, March 2nd. So that's Big Cap Day and uh, Fountain of Youth Day. So it's a, yep. a hybrid tournament between coast to coast. Exactly. Yeah. Hybrid tournament between Santa Anita and Gulfstream. Super cool. $6,000 buy-in there. You're going to get a seat to that if you finish, I believe, top five. And then we're also given the winner a, a seat for next year's Pegasus so they can come back and defend their title. So ton of prizes, super, uh, super, super great opportunity to punch those NHC tickets, punch those BCBC tickets, and then you're playing for a ton of cash. Love it. And it's getting late for the for NHC qualifying. So that's another thing to underline. You mentioned about the the UBC being a hybrid between Santa Anita and Gulfstream. One thing that's great about so many of the tournaments happening on ExpressBet is the fact that they're hybrid in the sense of you can play there in person or you can play online. Is that also the case with the Pegasus? And how can people sign up for each of those options? It absolutely is the case for Pegasus. And I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, people can play. You, you can jump in on, on ExpressBet. You can also come to Gulfstream on Pegasus Day. We've got a great spread in Sport of Kings, dozens of tables. The races are on the big screen. Uh, buffet meal, drinks, the whole nine yards for, for people who want to come in uh, to Gulfstream. We're also on site at Santa Anita. For those playing on golf, at Gulfstream, did want to mention there's $17,500 $17, in on-track bonuses. So the oh, highest cool. on-track finisher takes home an additional 10K, right? So that's even better. And, you know, to learn more about the tournament, to get involved, easiest thing you can do is head over to pwcbc.com. That's our official website for the contest. Head over there. There's instructions on how to register online at ExpressBet, instructions for how to register on track for Gulfstream, on track for Santa Anita. Um, it's very simple, very easy, takes just a, a couple moments and, and you're locked, loaded, and ready to play. Love it. Great stuff. I'm going to be there. Sport of Kings will be one of my ports of call that day. Hopefully I'll get to see a bunch of contest players root on some of my friends. It's truly it's a major event. I mean, you know, I'd never been to last year, Dustin, and I didn't quite get how huge of an event it is. Got to see you for a minute there over at the Carousel Absolutely. Club, as I, as I remember. And it's it's hard because I want to be everywhere all day. I want to be in the suites. I want to be in Temp Palms. I want to be in Sport of Kings, and I want to be at the Carousel Club. I'm going to be on TV, so I'll just be floating around between all of them, sharing the experience with the international audience. But obviously, eyes are going to be fixed on that leaderboard pwcbc.com the place to go for all the info dustin thanks so much for joining me today it's been a pleasure thank you for having me this week's lanes in legacy of the week is turn up the trees this first time starter by liam's map was game in his maiden victory at gulfstream park 
Turn up the trees broke a step behind, but quickly found himself pressing for the early lead. He earned his victory in a way that suggests he will appreciate more ground, which makes sense considering his damned Clearbrook broke her maiden around two turns and her other two wins were at a mile and seven sixteenths and a mile and a quarter. Liam's map has shown tremendous versatility with a variety of grade one winners, including two-year-old dirt, two-turn dirt, two-turn grass, colts, and fillies. Basin and Wicked Whisper hail from the first crop of Liam's maps, and since 1983, just eight other first crop stallions have sired two grade one winners, with only Danzig and Uncle Mo having sired both grade one fillies and Colts. Liam's map sales highlights are rewarding buyers as well. $1.2 million OBS April purchase turned into grade one winner Colonel Liam, and $500,000 Keeneland September turned into grade one winner Wicked Whisper. Turn Up the Trees looks to be another good one for Liam's map. It's Turn Up the Trees just in front. Celtic Pride with one more push on the outside. Turn Up the Trees digging in. Turn Up the Trees, a hard-fought winner. Celtic Pride second, up for third with Maximus Speed, ahead of Bourbon Society fourth in 112-1. As a wise man, I think it was John Cleese once said, and now for something completely different, every now and again, I just get a wild hair and decide to do something completely weird on the show. And I'm going to do that right now with a little poetry reading. This one was uh, shared pretty widely on Twitter this week. And I thought it was appropriate for the show because it is by the only famous poet I know who was also a devoted horse player. I'm sure there are others, but uh, Charles Bukowski certainly tops of the list, racing factored in his work. And this poem, while not explicitly about horse racing at all, has larger life applications as well but I thought it made perfect sense for horse players. I'm going to read it now. Roll the Dice by Charles Bukowski. If you're going to try, go all the way. Otherwise, don't even start. If you're going to try, go all the way. This could mean losing girlfriends, wives, relatives, jobs, and maybe your mind. Go all the way. It could mean not eating for three or four days. It could mean freezing on a park bench. It could mean jail. It could mean derision, mockery, isolation. Isolation is the gift. All the others are a test of your endurance, of how much you really want to do it. And you'll do it despite rejection and the worst odds. And it will be better than anything else you can imagine. If you're going to try, go all the way. There is no other feeling like that. You will be alone with the gods and the knights will flame with fire. Do it. Do it. Do it. Do it. All the way. All the way. You will ride life straight to perfect laughter. It's the only good fight there is. And that's going to do it for this edition of the show. I'd like to thank today's guests, Nick Tamaro and Dustin Fabian and Charles Bukowski, for that matter. Uh, really great getting to do these shows for you week in, week out. That's why I always close by thanking all of you, the listeners, for making these shows so much fun to do. Shout out also to our founding partners over at 10 Strike Racing. Super psyched to get to see Marshall down at the Pegasus next weekend. If you're around and you see me or you see us, holler, say hi for sure. Uh, Clay Sanders, I don't think I'm going to get to see there, but looking forward to hanging out with him again soon. Kim Weir, exciting stuff happening with her. Uh, we really are incredibly grateful to the belief in us she showed from before we were even a thing. We'd done one show the first time Kim Weir ever came up to me and said, hey, did you guys ever think about having a charity sponsor your podcast? Pretty cool stuff. We root for her. She will be on the show soon to tell us everything going on with her. This show's been a production of In The Money Media. I'm Peter Thomas Fornital. May you win all your photos.